Morning. Good to see everybody. I've got a little bit of a cold. Apologize. Don't have my normal soothing voice that I know you all come to hear. Um, especially if you're here for the first time this morning, we're really glad to see you. There is an old, old preacher story about a father who lays down to take a nap on Sunday afternoon, uh, but his little son keeps coming up to him and bugging him and saying, oh, I'm bored, you know, give me something to do. So he flips through the newspaper that's lying there, and he finds a map of the world, a picture of the globe, and he cuts it up into like 50 pieces, and he scrambles them all up, and he gives them to his son, and he says, okay, put this together. There's a puzzle for you, and uh, don't come and bother me again until it's finished. So he lays back down thinking he's bought himself like at least an hour of sleep, and like 20 minutes later, the little boy comes shaking him. He's like, oh, it's all done, it's all done. So the father's incredulous. He knows the son doesn't know the positions of the countries, not even, he doesn't know the positions of the continents, and so he's, what's going on here? So he goes and he looks at it, and it's perfect, and he says, son, how did you do that? And the son says, well, that was pretty easy. On the back of the newspaper page, there was a picture of a person, and once I got my person put together, the world looked just fine. It's a good story. You can see why preachers like it. Um, We're going to talk for the next seven weeks about putting your person together. We're going to work for the next seven weeks on your person. We're talking about spiritual growth, about how to grow spiritually, personally. I want to start this morning by talking about two misconceptions about spiritual growth. The first is that spiritual growth is kind of this specialized thing that applies to one area of your life. So spiritual growth is about kind of like how to connect with God more or how to understand Christianity better, that sort of thing. Uh, It's actually just the opposite. Spiritual growth is the only type of personal growth that affects every area of your life, that deals with the very core of who you are. So uh, in 1999, there was this book that came out, Body for Life. I don't know if any of you remember it. It spent like three years on the New York Times bestseller list. Crazy, phenomenal hit. I think a lot of the reason why it was such a big hit is, I mean, yeah, it had all these, you know, exercise techniques and stuff, but it claimed, I mean, the, the underlying theme was if you get in shape, it's going to positively affect all these other areas of your life, too. It's going to make you have better relationships. It's going to make you have more energy and more drive. It's going to make you happier, all these things. Now, that's true to some extent, obviously. I mean, if you get physically fit, there are kind of spillover effects to other areas of your life. And the same thing's true if you, you know, work on your your emotions, if you get more in touch with your emotions, or if you work on your moral self, or if you try to grow intellectually, all those have sort of spillover effects. But spiritual growth, growing spiritually, working on your spiritual person, is the only type of personal growth that affects all of those simultaneously, equally. It's really the core of who you are. Spiritual growth doesn't deal with a part of you, it deals with the whole of you. It's the only personal growth like that. So that's the first misconception. It's not something that deals with part of you, just kind of your churchy self. It's something that deals with the whole of you. The second misconception about spiritual growth is that it's something that happens primarily through exercises and disciplines. And it's easy to see why we think that, because all those other types of growth that I just mentioned happen that way. Uh, Obviously with physical growth, physical fitness, going to the gym and working out. But same thing with, like, if you want to grow intellectually, there are disciplines you can develop. If you want to grow morally, there are disciplines you can develop. Ben Franklin famously had this chart that he would carry around with him of 13 virtues, and he would put a little mark on, in each box on the day that he messed up. 
and then would compare week to week how he was doing. It's just a system. There's books on all of these, too, by the way. You know, I mentioned Body for Life already, but Intellectual Growth, um, How to Read a Book, Mortimer J. Adler, classic on intellectual disciplines, how to make yourself kind of more educated. Or the, the, the best book ever written probably on moral and emotional growth is uh, the Stephen Covey book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, all these books have one thing in common, which is that they have a system for you to follow. There's this system that you go through to kind of get better. They also have in common that they conveniently place a little order form at the back of the book where you can kind of get supplementary products. But they all give you a system of disciplines and exercises so that you can grow in these areas. Now, will they make you a better person? Sure. Sure, they'll make you a better person. It's not, it's not snake oil. You know, discipline works. This stuff is real. Sure, you can become physically fit. Sure, you be- can become more emotionally aware and mature through discipline. Same thing for your moral faculties. Same thing for your intellectual faculties. Absolutely, it, it, it works. But what will never happen, what will never happen following any of these systems is that you will never become a person from whom love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, spontaneously erupt without you even trying. You can't even stop it. That will never happen. That will never happen by following any of these systems. That can only happen through spiritual growth. You say, okay, I, I get it. So give me the spiritual exercises. You know, what are the spiritual things I need to do? What is it, pray, read my Bible? You know, there's got to be a set of spiritual exercises for spiritual growth, just like there's a set of exercises for all these other types of growth too, right? That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that spiritual growth is primarily something that is God-initiated. It's something that God does in you. And this misconception that it's something that we do ourselves is as old as Christianity. In the first generation of Christianity, the Apostle Paul addresses this in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians 3, chapter 3 says, Having begun your new life in Christ in the Spirit, what makes you think that you should now continue it by your own effort? See, a lot of Christians know that when you come to God, when you come to God and say, God, I want to have a relationship with you, that that's all grace. It's all about you just saying, God, you know, I, I give up, you take it, and God accepts you as you are. But then we think, oh, after that, though, after that, then you kind of try. Then it's about your own effort. Growing as a Christian, growing as a spiritual person is about your own effort. And what Paul says is, now, what would make you think that it, when it begins this way? When it begins like this, it would suddenly turn into this different sort of thing along the way. Why would you believe that? That doesn't make any sense. No, it's the Spirit at the beginning. It's the Spirit of God at the beginning. It's the Spirit of God all the way through. Now, disciplines can help at some point down the road. You know, praying, reading your Bible, that sort of thing. That can help support and sustain growth that's already happening in your life but it will never kickstart it. It will never be able to be a catalyst on its own. Instead, it has to be the Spirit of God in you doing those things. It's in that same letter, Galatians, that Paul, a couple chapters later, gives this list that I just recited a second ago, love, joy, peace, and calls them the fruit of the Spirit. That's not just an empty metaphor. The fruit of the Spirit. He uses that word for a particular reason. As a, It's a metaphor with a long history, Jesus used the same metaphor, and Jesus was borrowing it from the Old Testament even before that. The image is, a, is of a tree that's healthy, a healthy tree, and fruit appears on the branches of the tree organically, 
naturally, supernaturally, almost miraculously. It just, it just happens. It just happens. And Paul says spiritual growth is like that. When it happens in your life, it just happens. The Spirit does it in your life. You say, okay, great. Thanks for letting me know that. Now I don't have to feel as guilty about all those spiritual disciplines I'm not doing. That's nice. A couple questions. One, why are we sitting here this morning? You know, if God just does it, why, why do we bother to come to church? Why do we bother to, to try at all? Couldn't God just do it in me when I'm sitting at home on my couch just as easily? You know, what's, what's the point? First question. Second, why isn't it happening in my life? If it's something that God does and not me, why isn't it happening? Because before, I thought I knew why I wasn't growing spiritually the way I thought I could. I thought it was just that I wasn't doing the things I was supposed to do, you know, reading my Bible enough, praying enough, that kind of thing. But now that you tell me that it's something that God's Spirit does in me, why isn't it happening to me? That doesn't make I've I've given my life to God. Why isn't that happening in my life? I can answer both of those questions the same way, which is just to say, you do still have a part to play. You still have a part to play, and that part is just to get out of the way. It's just to get out of the way of what God wants to do in your life. But that is a lot trickier than it first appears. It's a lot harder to get out of the way than it seems. So what we're going to talk about for the next month and a half is how do you get out of the way? How do you get out of the way so that the Spirit can work in your life? Because you can never produce the spiritual growth on your own. You can never make love come out of your life. You can never make joy come out of your life. God has to do that. But what you can do is keep from inhibiting it. And all of us have ways that we're inhibiting it in our lives. Jesus, in the opening paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives kind of a step-by-step rundown of how do you get out of the way of God's work in your life? How do you submit to this and just let it happen? And we're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at the six steps of how to do that. We're going to look at the first step this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, as we look together at the way that you want to grow us spiritually and the type of people that you want us to become, I pray that you would give us a vision for it, that you'd help us to see it, and that you would give us whatever courage and fortitude is necessary to take the steps to submit to you and to to remove ourselves from the process so that you can work and you can do what you want to do in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what do I mean by get out of the way? What, is, what am I talking about when I say get out of the way? Well, to go back to this image of a tree and fruit appearing on the branches, what the Bible teaches is that there's a disease. The disease is called sin. And the way that we inhibit our own growth, the way we inhibit the Spirit's work in our lives is to, to consciously allow this disease into the equation so that then kind of God's Spirit is choked out. Now, sin is, is an old, stodgy, churchy word, but there really is no substitute for it. I can't kind of update it because it's such a multifaceted concept that to, to use any other word would be lose part of it. So we most often think of sin as um, like a voluntary action, something you'd like, oh, don't do that, it's a sin, or you go to the confession booth you know, and say to the priest, you know, I, I sinned eight times this month or whatever which is a pretty good month, but um, it's, not, it's not like that. It's, that's part of it. It's not the whole picture. What the, what the Bible, if you look in, in fact, you don't even need to go to the Bible. You can look in Webster's Dictionary 
Definition 2B in the dictionary for sin is an impaired state of human nature when human beings, when the self is estranged from God. And that's what the Bible says about sin, is that sin is not just something you do. Sin is a force, a power that inhabits you, that influences you, and that wants you to do one thing and one thing only. It doesn't, it's like, forget about bad things, forget about like the list of things you're not supposed to do. Sin doesn't have all these different forms. I mean, it has different forms. It doesn't have any goal but one. And its one goal is to get you to challenge God's authority, to get you to say to God, who made you God? You know, why do you have the right to tell me what to do? That's the whole point of sin. That's the big idea. God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have a relationship with me. But God is one of those guys, you know the type, that the relationship is always on his terms. And there's kind of nothing you can do about it. He's God and you're not. If you've ever watched um, old, old Saturday Night Live tapes, Chevy Chase used to open the weekend update by saying, Hi, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. That was his kind of signature line. That's basically what God says at creation. Hi, I'm God, and you're not. And sin comes and says, why should it be that way? That's not fair. Why should it be that way? This is the conversation that happens verbatim in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. Sin comes and says, why should he get to call the shots? Why should he be the one that's in charge? That doesn't make any sense. What I want to spend the rest of our time doing this morning is talking about the three forms, the three most common forms that that question takes. It's all the same question. Why should God get to call the shots? But it takes three forms in our life, and I think one of them will probably resonate more with each of you than one of the other, than the other two. Um, They're all kind of operational somewhere in some area of our life, but, but listen and see which one of these grabs you. The first form that the challenge to God takes, why should he call the shots? is the first thing that, that Satan says in the Garden of Eden and is why should he set limits on what you enjoy? Why should he place parameters on what you enjoy? That doesn't make any sense. Why don't you enjoy what you want to enjoy? So in the Garden of Eden, God made all these trees, all these fruit trees for Adam and Eve to enjoy. And then he placed one tree in the garden. He said, don't eat from this one tree. And Satan comes and says, that sounds pretty arbitrary. You know, I mean, what's that about? That is, that's kind of like messed up, right? Why should you not get to eat from that tree? And so Adam and Eve take from the tree. Same thing happens today. God gives us gifts to enjoy, and Satan comes and says, or sin comes and says, you know, it seems pretty arbitrary that these gifts are supposed to be enjoyed within limits. Why don't you just push it just a little bit? So God gives us food and wine to enjoy, but it's within limits. God gives us sex to enjoy, but it's within limits. It's within these parameters. God gives us possessions to enjoy, but it's within limits, within parameters. And sin says, why don't you just push it a little bit and show your independence? Now, that's a lie. It's, it's an absolute lie because human beings are the sort of people, the sort of being, the sort of creature that always have a master. You're never your own master. Freedom isn't getting to tell yourself what to do. It's just kind of choosing who tells you what to do. So sin says, hey, you're in God's domain over here, but if you just push the limits a little bit beyond what he's set up, these parameters, then you'll be in your own domain. You're kind of your own king at that point. It's a lie. It's a lie. Once you cross over, you're not in God's domain. You're in sin's domain. And guess who's a crueler master? 
Guess who's going to deal with you more harshly? You're not, the, the lie is if you get over this line, you kind of call your own shots, but it's really the opposite. You are now under the dominion of someone who doesn't care for your best interest. You say, well, how do you know that's true? And that sounds kind of like a cute, clever line to try to convince people to not transgress God's boundaries. But, I mean, is that really true? Is that really true that you become kind of under sin's power if you go over God's lines? How do you know that it's not true that you're just independent? You know, it seems like people are independent out there. Um, I know for the following reason. I'll start with something really silly and kind of trivial. First example, in honor of the Social Network movie that's coming out this week. Have any of you ever, ever before in your life checked Facebook even when you didn't want to? And what I mean by that is you're sitting there on Facebook and somebody comes in and says, like, oh, what do you really want to be doing right now? And you wouldn't say, oh, I want to be on Facebook. That's what I really want to be doing. But there you are on Facebook. Or another really silly example, has anybody ever eaten a cookie or a brownie or a piece of pie or another handful of potato chips that they didn't really want to eat ever? Yes, you have. I have too. Don't pretend like you haven't. And we t- listen to the way we talk. Like at the end of a the night, there's half a dessert left, and you say to your friend, oh, take that, take that, or I'll eat it. Take it or I'll eat it. Now, that's normal to us. We just kind of go with that because it seems like a totally normal thing to say. But what would a rational person say to that? They say, well, do you want to eat it? Well, no, that's the whole point. I don't want to eat it. Well, why would you eat it if I left it then, if you don't want it? Well, I, I just, I don't know. I just would. I'd just eat it. How's that independence working out for you? you know, how's, how's that going? Now, those are really silly examples when you start to you know, dabble your toe into things besides Facebook and chocolate cake, you know, it gets more serious. I don't want to overeat. I don't want to drink too much, but I just can't stop. I don't want to buy things I don't need, but I just can't stop. I don't want to gamble online, but I just can't stop. I don't want to look at pornography, but I just can't stop. And you think, oh, I'll just try it, you know. I'll just kind of, I'll do it this once, and then I'll go back into God's side. You know, what does one time hurt? And sin says, gotcha, gotcha. And you say, I'm done with that now. Well, it's not done with you. Guess what? It's just getting started with you. You know, you consume it, and then it starts consuming you. So it's not just a choice. It's a power. And when you give into it, its power increases in your life, and it chokes out the Spirit of God. It's real. This is real. This isn't like fairy tales, you know? You see this stuff in movies of, like, Spider-Man 3... I don't, a few years back, there was like this black goo that latched onto him. And the more bad stuff he did, the more powerful it got. That's a picture of sin nature. That was a terrible movie. It was, I mean, obviously the worst of the three. But anyway, it's, you know, it's a picture of sin nature. Or the Lord of the Rings, that ring, you know, when you give into it and it gain, gains power. But it's not something. It makes great stories, you know, because it's at the foundation of the universe. This is real. This is something that really happens. This is why people all over this city... This week, right now in this minute, are doing things that they don't want to do, but they can't find a way to stop doing them. Why? Because when you step outside the limits God has placed on the things we're supposed to enjoy, this happens. So why, why did God even make the limits to begin with? I don't know. I don't know. He's God. That's the whole point. That's such a like sin mindset question. I don't know. I don't know why I made the limits. I don't know why there are consequences, but there are. He's God. And if you cross over, you're in somebody else's domain. It's the first most common way 
that sin puts this question to us is, well, why should God set limits on what you enjoy? The second most common way that, that sin puts this question of challenging God to us is, why should God be the one that kind of directs and guides and controls the events of your life? Because I bet he doesn't have your best interest at heart all the time. I bet, and so, I bet maybe even he wants to keep you down. Maybe even he kind of wants to keep his thumb on you and not let you rise to these great heights that you're capable of. Why don't you call the shots in your own life in the sense of kind of making your own decisions and controlling your own world and your own scenarios and that sort of thing? Kind of being in charge, being number one. So the first one's about pleasure. This one's about power. It's about control. Saying, why don't you be the one that controls your own life? That's what sin comes and says to us. Three main things that we try to control. Real quickly, I want to run through these. And three negative consequences of trying to control these things. The first thing that we try to control is is perception. Other people's perceptions of us, of our family, of our business. A lot of us are in 24-7 image management mode. It's always about kind of how do I come across and how can I make people perceive me and what I'm involved in and who I'm related to the way that I want them to. This causes a lot of fear because if you're kind of always playing a game and putting up a front and putting spin on something, the fear is, oh, somebody's going to figure this out. Somebody's going to find out who I really am. There's a book called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? And the answer to that is because if I tell you who I am and you don't like it, too bad, I'm stuck. That's all I've got. You know, that's the only me I've got. But to the extent that you wear a mask and kind of do image management and spin control and that sort of thing, you can keep people at arm's distance and then kind of keep yourself safe. So the key here is not to get too close to anybody. That's the first thing that we try to control is perceptions. And you see this in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve hide. That's the first thing they do after they sin is they hide, kind of trying to control what people can see. We want to show people one part of ourselves, but hide another part. That's the first thing we try to control. The second thing we try to control is people, other people in our lives. Parents try to control their children. Children try to control their parents. Wives try to control husbands. Husbands try to control wives. Colleagues try to control each other. I'm sure you haven't noticed that there are office politics at your office, you know, I'm sure your office is the only one in the city that doesn't have this sort of thing going on. But it's not just other people. We do it too. We try to control other people. We try to orchestrate things. We try to act like a puppet master and kind of pull all the strings and make people do what we want them to do. This causes fatigue. The negative consequence of trying to control other people is fatigue. You get tired. It gets tiring trying to make your kids turn out just the way you want them and make sure your husband's always happy. It gets tiring trying to make sure every client is right in line and every associate is right in line. It gets tiring. It gets tiring trying to control other people. But we do it because what if we didn't? What if we left it up to God to control the other people in our lives? What would they do? They'd probably do crazy things. They'd probably do things we didn't like. So we have to manipulate. We have to try everything we know how to control the people around us. First, we try to control perceptions. Second, we try to control other people around us. And the third thing we try to control is our problems. I'm okay. I've got it. It's not a big deal. Got it covered. Don't worry about it. You know, it's fine. It's really, it's fine. Sounds like somebody trying to play God. 
But when problems come into our life, the last thing we want to do is throw up our hands and give up. We always try to control it. We always try to make it kind of all work out. This leads to frustration um, because I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's not like problems stop coming. I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty young guy, and I have more times than I can count in my short life. I mean, I've seen this happen. I can name so many people that have, like, said seriously, sincerely, you know, it's just this season. It's just, it, once I get through this, once I get to this marker, you know, things will calm down and it'll kind of be less crazy and there'll be less problems. And you, you check back in, you know, after the marker, and guess what? It's not any different. They keep coming up. It's like the, the arcade games, the whack-a-mole, you know? You're just hitting them, and one pops up here, and then it pops up over here, and it's endless. If you're so powerful, why don't you just unplug the machine, you know? But you can't. And some of you, it's not this whack-a-mole phenomenon with, you know, the problems just keep coming. Some of you, it's one problem that you've been dealing with for year after year after year, and it just seems like it'll never go away. And you have, like, a part-time, 20-hour-per-week position just in managing this one problem in your life. We can't let it go, because what will God do? What will God do with that problem? Probably jack it up even worse than you are, right? So you just keep holding on to the problem. We try to control perception, other pe- how other people see us. We try to control other people, and we try to control our problems. It's the second big way. If you add all those together, it's the second big way that sin comes and says, hey, why should God be God? Is, first, he says, why should you set limits on what you enjoy? And second, he says, sin says, why should you let him kind of direct your life? Why don't you try to control your life instead? The third one, and I'm going to spend less time on this one um, because it's something that I'm not as intimately acquainted with myself. I, I can speak from experience about pushing the limits of, of pleasure and about trying to control things. I know that. This one I don't know as well. It's more subtle, um, but it's every bit as real and it's every bit as important, so I'm just going to mention it. And maybe 10 years from now, you know, if you hear me on this again, I'll have something different to say. But the third one is... Sin comes and says things to people who have been hurt in their past, who have been abused, who have been neglected, who have been rejected. And sin comes and it preys on victims. So it doesn't just, it works both sides of the table. It doesn't just get people to do bad stuff. But then it comes to the victims and says, you know what, I, you, I bet you probably deserve that. You know what, I bet that that happened to you because you're no better than that anyway. You know what? I bet that that happened to you because God doesn't really care about you. If he had cared about you, he wouldn't have let that happen to you. Now, again, I can't, I can't speak from experience on this, but what I know is that that is sin talking, that that is evil talking. And I know that as crazy as it sounds, it's just as wrong to give in to that voice as it is to give in to this voice to push the limits of what you enjoy or to, to try to control your world. That it's still, even though it's like, man, how, what can I do? You know, I'm the victim. Still, it's giving in to sin to give in to that voice. But when you're hurt, those things sound so real. They make so much sense. And so then you kind of just take whatever you can get, right? This is the cause of, like, accepting whatever kind of love is out there, no matter, you know, how it makes you feel. It's the cause of anxiety and fear and codependency and insecurity and guilt, all these awful things happen from believing sin's voice about these hurts that have happened in our past. And, you know, if you take the control one, that's the cause of 
this anger and this um, overworking and this anxiety. And if you take the the pleasure one, that's the cause of all these addictions, you know, sexual addiction and and addictions to food and alcohol and drugs and gambling and all these sorts of things. So what we're doing in this series for the next six weeks is we're talking about, we're not going to kind of talk about any of these things specifically um, anymore after this week, and we'll touch on them a little bit again next week. But we're talking about how do you break free from sin's grip in one of these areas in your life so that the spirit can flourish. Because if you focus on how do I produce love in my life or how do I produce joy in my life, it'll never work. God has to do that. You have to focus on the other end of the the equation, which is how do I stop letting this disease into my life? And for a lot of you, I, I think that there's probably one of these areas more than the others, maybe, maybe all of them, where you're stuck. You, you're stuck and you've been stuck for a long time. You're stuck with this habit that you can't change. You keep saying, oh, that'll be the last time, but you just you keep being stuck in the habit. You're stuck in this pattern of trying to control everything around you, and you know that you should stop. You know that you should just kind of let go and not try to micromanage everybody, but you can't stop. You can't find a way around controlling everybody. Or you're stuck with this hurt that you've had for a long time, and you don't know how to feel relief from it. You don't know how to feel, not feel guilty, even though you didn't know you, even though you know that you didn't do anything wrong. You're stuck with this hurt, and you can't get past it. And one of these things is keeping you from growing in your relationship with God. One of them is preventing you from moving forward. Jesus, like I said, gives the answer about how to give, how to get unstuck in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be going through this passage for the next seven weeks. We've just got the first three verses here this morning. Check out your program here. The top passage. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. This should sound familiar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who just kind of give up on trying to make themselves happy by all these different little habits they're dabbling in. Blessed are those who mourn, those who accept what happened to them and just come to God and say, I don't know why this happened, but I'm mourning over it. Blessed are the meek, those who stop trying to control everything in their lives and say, you know, I don't think I can do this. The toughest thing about Christianity, um, I think especially for people that live in our neighborhood down here and people in our church, is that it's, it's something for losers. It's something for people that are kind of pathetic. And if you're a winner in life, it's pretty hard to grab it. It's really hard to grab it. This is why Jesus says you know, it's kind of hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not because there's anything bad about money. It's just because if you're a winner, it's hard to buy into this system for losers. But it's clear. I mean, there's no kind of two ways about it. It's a system for people who feel like losers. And... God says, when you get to that point, that's when I can start helping you. That's when I can come into your life and start making a difference. But you have to get there first. That's this hitting bottom. That's why I'm calling this message hitting bottom. You might have heard that phrase before if you ever hung around somebody that went to like a 12-step group. Um, That's kind of a catchy phrase that they use a lot in like Alcoholics Anonymous or things like that. But guess what? We need it too. Alcoholics Anonymous is comes out of the principles of the Bible, you know, in the 1930s. It was an Episcopalian priest here in New York, actually, that had this group going, and 
and taught Bob Wilson and those guys these principles. It comes from Jesus. And, you know, it's easy for an alcoholic, right? Well, it's not easy. But you, you, you see an alcoholic who kind of their whole life is in shambles, and you understand why they have to kind of hit bottom and then kind of go from there. But if your life is going pretty good, if you just kind of got a side issue, you know, a little habit that you can't kick or this, you know, control problem or this hurt that kind of nags at you, if you've got a side issue and you're pretty successful in your life, it's really hard to get to this place of kind of destitution. And so I'm not, like, expecting anybody to, you know, turn around and in a week or even seven weeks. You know, this, this is just the first step. It's hitting bottom thing, and it's probably the hardest step for a lot of us, just admitting I'm powerless, I can't do this on my own, but it's kind of the key around which everything else revolves, and it has to start here. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to spend next week talking about this too. We're going to look at it from a slightly different angle and spend two weeks of kind of dwelling on what does it mean to, to hit bottom? What does it mean to kind of come to the end of yourself? And you have to really believe it. You know, it's one of those things you can't fake you can't fake this feeling of giving up. You have to really believe, I am powerless on my own to change this habit that I can't stop. I'm powerless on my own to control the world around me. I'm powerless on my own to get over this hurt. And as long as you believe I can manage this, then that's kind of, there's no real hope. And, you know, God will be patient. He'll wait. And as long as you keep trying to manage it, he'll still be there. And then when you're finally done, you can kind of come to him. But if there's any way to accelerate that process, if there's any way to do kind of some soul searching and say, man, can I get to this place? Can I get to this place of rock bottom any faster? It'll be a lot better off for it. I want to read again the verse that John read, the second verse John read from Isaiah chapter 57. I've seen how they acted, but I will heal them. I will lead them and help them. I will comfort those who mourn. Offer peace to all near and far. I will heal my people. This is the first step to spiritual growth is accepting God's offer to kind of take care of you. And again, like I said earlier, we know we have to do that at the step of salvation, but we forget we have to do that to grow in Christ, to to grow with God as well. What we're going to do for our life groups this quarter is instead of doing a separate study where we kind of study a different passage of the Bible each week, we're going to track with these seven weeks of the series and we're going to talk about the exact same material in our life groups we're going to kind of talk about how do we apply this to our lives so i mean it's not going to be too weird or too high pressure it's not going to be like go around and be like okay what's yours you know like come on did you hit bottom this week you know it's it's not going to be like that but we are going to we're going to do it differently than we've done in the past we're going to spend before we kind of did a bible study and then we had a group time at the end when we shared with one another and now we're going to flip-flop that and we're going to have kind of a shorter intro time and then a longer time in groups and praying together. We're going to see what God does. We're going to see if God moves in our midst and what happens when we start kind of examining this process of letting go of these things in our lives and seeing what God does when we create space for him. The band's going to come now and, and play a song and for the first couple verses and for the course i want you to just kind of sit and listen and pray this is kind of going to be our theme song for this series on getting unstuck because really what we're talking about is brokenness kind of stopping from keeping yourself all together and, and learning how to be broken before god and this song talks about that so listen as as the band plays and think about these words and, and pray to god um, in your own heart and ask him 
to reveal to you what, what is it? What are these things that's keeping me stuck? And how can I get to that place of kind of giving up?